G'day, it's Phil here at Game Changers and a School for Tomorrow. Over the last part of this year, we're talking about voice and agency and advocacy and learners. Can't think of anybody who's better qualified from her own experience of the world and the way in which she's led in the world of education to talk about voice agency and advocacy than the remarkable Jojo McKechn. She's crossed our paths on many occasions. She's a good friend of ours and a good friend of mine. I'm really excited that we get the opportunity to dig deep with her in a special series of three episodes. I'm excited. I can't wait. Let's go. Before you start your conversation with today's Game Changers special series guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little insight into our Series 12 sponsor? Of course, Adriano. We are partnered with the Dynamic Education Team at the Museum of Australian Democracy. MOAD Learning can support your teaching and learning needs on a range of topics, including civics and citizenship, democracy, empowering voice, and so much more. Visit moadoph.gov.au forward slash learning. That's moadoph.gov.au forward slash learning. G'day, Jojo. It's an way, Phil. It's lovely to be here. I'm very excited to have some time with you. Yeah, I'm very excited to have some time with you as well, too. Greetings from Wurundjeri Woiwurrung country in the Kulin Nation. Where are you today? Oh, Tanakwe, I'm sitting on my own land. I'm sitting on Naitahu land in Te Waipunami, which is the South Island of Aotearoa, New Zealand, and land that I own myself, but um, was reclaimed by my people also. So I'm very excited to be here, and it's a, it's a real honour to sit on my own land and be able to speak with you today. Why don't we start there? Mm. Talk to me about the voice of First Nations people and why it's so important that we learn to listen to voices that have been excluded from the conversation for so long. Oh, that's a really big, heavy start to the conversation, Phil. Um, but I think it's, it's <laughs> I a really important one. Yeah, yeah. And I yeah, think, no, I just thought I'd start it with a light, easy one for yeah, you. Yeah, light, easy one know. to start us off for the day. Um, I think for me, it's 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 a voice that's been growing inside me and one that I've recognised gets louder and stronger as I've got older, but it's always been one that's been sitting there and one that I've fought to hear all of my life. And it's it's the Indigenous voice because, I, you know, if I think back to when I was a little kid, I used to always say to people, if we would just listen to Indigenous people, we might be able to heal the world. And I really had no idea why I was saying that. And I think as I've got older, it's it's the understanding that Indigenous people have walked our earth for so many hundreds of thousands of years, and we, or maybe not hundreds of thousands of years, but thousands and thousands of years, and we've, we, you know, they've survived. And we've survived. And so why wouldn't we listen to how did they do that? You know, and then it's only in the last sort of thousand years that we've really done some damage to our planet, to Mother Earth, to Papatua Nuku. So why wouldn't we listen to the voices of those who have survived before us and understood what we can do to make it a better place for us to be today? Um, I think there's an arrogance that we have today that, that we each individually know best. But from my perspective, it's that collectively we know best. And if we work together and listen to the voices of those who we haven't listened to for a while, we might get a better outcome for all of our people. So when did you first find a sense of that voice that you want to express so strongly and so constructively and so assertively in just about everything that you do now? Uh, that voice was there from when I was a little child because I used to. I've always known I was Maori, but we weren't allowed to know we were Maori. Um, so I, I knew it from a child because I had a very different relationship with the land and with people than what my peers did. 
Um, I grew up in, as I said, I, I'm in the South Island. I grew up in Tiwaipunami, which is which is often um, Māori people are very fair-skinned down here, so it's hard to tell who's Māori and who's not. And um, so I was able to to not necessarily be seen as Māori. And um, but I always knew there was something slightly different about me than my Pakeha uh, friends. And so as I grew older, I sort of, you know, I used to say to my mum, I'm Māori, aren't I? And she would sort of, you know, smile at me and just not really say anything. And so it's sort of, it's been, it, it was always there, but it was something that I didn't, didn't, we, we weren't allowed to acknowledge. So as I've just got older, I've just, I've not been able to avoid it. It's just kept screaming at me that this is who you are. And until you face who you are, until you understand who you are, until you really look at where is your heritage and when you plant your feet firmly on your own land, then you really recognise that you don't have a choice but to be who you are. And I think when you look at the traditions and the knowledge that is passed down, the Mataranga Māori or the Māori knowledge, um, it's in your genes, it's in your genetic makeup. And I think I'm a really good example of that because I, I talk about how I already knew and nobody told me. How did I know that? How did I feel that? How did I understand that? How did I connect in a different way without people sort of giving me that knowledge? How did I look at my writing? And when I look at so much of the things I've written and talked about and be and how I design the work that I do, it all comes from a very Indigenous lens, but I wasn't aware of that until I sort of got a lot older and a lot more, a lot more mature, I guess, or wiser. That was then, this is now. Why don't you help our listeners with a little bit of a snapshot of what it is that you do in the world of education and what it is that you do in society at large? And then we might trace a pathway from then to now, if that's mm -hmm. all right. Yeah, so what I do now is I work across the globe with different people within different countries who are interested in really looking at how do they shift educational outcomes for learners and for communities. Um, I have companies in three different countries, in the United States, in Australia, and in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And I work mainly with, I guess, interested parties, so for anything from governments all the way through to communities. Um, so it's it's a matter of uh, who's really interested in really trying to change the outcomes for the, the children in the community. So I, I have that. Plus, I also have a charitable trust, Kekutahiako, which is, means in, in English, learning as one, where we're looking at solving educational solving education by solving, or well, well, sorry, solving climate change problems. And then by doing that, we're really looking at um, how do we solve education by actually doing something rather than focusing on the education piece. Um, and looking at, through, looking at that through a really Indigenous lens. So I do those things. I'm also on the North American Advisory Board for Education New Zealand, and that's just look at how do we create better relationships between our countries from um, Canada, America, Mexico. And then I'm also on the People's Board for Canada, and I work out of Salzburg Global Seminar, a group called Karanga, where we're working with multiple countries trying to change the outcomes or trying to push governments to think differently about what should, should, should education be as an outcome and not just knowledge, really trying to push it to make it a, you know, wider, a wider outcomes from, you know, than, than, just than just knowledge for education. You do a few <laughs> things, really, just a, just yeah. a little bit. Um, if I can, I just want to pick up on that last one, the work that you do with Karanga, because it's, it's important, I think, to the story of the development of, of, of your voice. It's, it's more than just the knowing, it's the knowing, it's the doing, it's the being, and it's the learning along yeah. the way. If I look at that profile of all the remarkable things that you're doing, and we might choose um, to focus on the work you do in advocacy in the third of our series, and then we might choose to look at um, contributive learning uh, in particular in the in the second of our series when we look at uh, agency. 
today, if I can, I, I, I want to develop a sense of your storyline as you go from a girl growing up in South Island of New Zealand to somebody who is one of the most distinctive and important voices in New Zealand education and in world education right now. It's, it's, it's quite a journey, really, isn't it? It is, and sometimes I laugh, Phil. I, well, not laugh, I'm, I sometimes I get it, I, I pinch myself because here I am, a little girl from Gore, which is a tiny little town in the bottom of the South Island of Tiwaipunomu, and I think, how did I get here? And it's it's a, it's a, it's an incredible journey, really, and I feel very, you know, I shouldn't say I'm lucky because I've worked really hard to get here, but I, I sometimes get a surprise that, how, you know, that, that I got, that, I, that I'm here. And, I, you know, I really want to give, you know, kudos to, to my country, um, and to the people in my country for actually the way that I was raised and 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 to my people because we we are warriors we are we are people who are out there to who really want to make a difference and we are also peacekeepers we really want to make a change in the world that is actually based on around what what do people need and who are we and I think that that when I really look at my indigeneity and what that means it, it means a lot to me now and so, therefore, I, I look back on a whole lot of experiences that created me, and I'm really grateful, really, really grateful. Listeners may not know this, but Jojo and I are pretty good friends now. It's quite unusual in, a, in one of these special series for me to have the opportunity to uh, have a yarn with, with someone who I'm close to. Usually I'm just getting to know someone for the first time. Um, I, I've, been, I've been away um, working in, uh, in the United Kingdom and the United States for the last few weeks and thinking about what we were going to chat about on this series and how it was that we could together join up the storylines of mm -hmm. your life as an individual teacher who then goes on to influence education in a country and then globally. Did you always know that you wanted to be a teacher? Um, it's a really interesting story because I'm from a family of seven seven ch children and my father was a school principal. And so I always said, no, I'm not going to be a principal, oh, sorry, a teacher, because everybody else was. And five of us trained as teachers. So you can imagine of course, what it was like. Of course you did. It was sort of like, there was no way I was going to be a teacher as well. And um, I was an exchange student to the United States and I came home um, when I got off the plane. My father said to me, so Jojo, what are you going to be now? What, what do you want to do with your life? And I put my head down and said, I'm going to be a teacher. And he laughed. His head <laughs> and he, said, he said, of course you are. He said, the reason I knew that is because every time you talk about kids or every time you're talking to people and explaining things or, you know, you, get, you come to life, you get excited. And he said, there's just no question about it. You know, then I went to teacher's college and I tried to escape and went and lived in Sydney um, and went surfing on Bondi Beach for six months. And I, But every time I went past a school, I would look and think, why are those kids not in school? Or, or, or if there was a child outside, it was so I, I just it's in my blood. I couldn't stop myself. And so it was sort of like and, and I really you know, I don't think I really am alive unless I'm talking about education. It's just it just flows out of me and I'm just so interested in it. And it's just to me, it's about. How do, we, how do we keep our world in a place of um, growth, in a place of love, in a place of taking care of each other and of our planet? And to me, that's the whole, you know, that's the whole reason why we educate. So it's, it, I, didn't, I didn't necessarily want to be a teacher when I was a kid, but it just happened and then therefore it just carried on. I just, I never ever dreamed I would be a global leader in education. I knew that I would be a teacher. Once I became a teacher, I thought for sure I'd become a principal because that would be, you know, I, I wouldn't have a choice of that. But then it just, it just kept going and just kept getting tapped on the shoulder and asked to do the next job and then the next job and the next job. And then the Minister of Education asked me to do the next job. And then I got asked by another Minister of Education to do another job. And 
I just, and, and I just kept going and kept going and kept going. And it was like I was thirsty and hungry for new knowledge. And I wondered what, what, how did another country do it? Or how did another place do it? Or how do we figure this one out? And then it just from that moment on, I started to see systems. And I started to see, okay, well, if that works here and that works here and that works here, how do we bring it all together? And, you know, slowly I realized um, that, that things have patterns, things have systems, things have ways of working. And that if we start to apply that to education, there are ways that we can start to shift and change and, and make things better for people and take out a lot of the noise that gets trapped in systems that that have been there for a long time and, and they don't belong to the people who are currently there. So I think once we've done that, that once I started to do that, that was it. I was hooked. And it was just like, for me, it was a challenge to try and find what are the things that are stopping us be successful. Yeah, of course, of course. I mean, that 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 sort of insatiable pattern to mm. know why and to, and to search for meaning, I think is... Uh, so many teachers have that within them. And yet what I find interesting about your story is that that passion to know why and to understand was always being fed by a combination of influences at home, but also connections you made overseas. Mm -hmm. So there was always a global element to the formation of, of Jojo, I think, even, even when you ended up at, uh, at Bondi, the adopted home of, of my people uh, or my mother's people when they, when they yeah. settled in Australia, um, escaping the pogroms of uh, East and, and, and other conflagrations of Eastern Europe in the 1920s. Where, where did they settle, of course, but Bondi? Yeah. Um, it's interesting, isn't it, how as we seek to make connections with the world, the world finds its way to make those connections with us and... Mm. The more that we embrace the other, the more we're able to connect with the other at the same time. That's that sort of interdependence thing, I think, that is so um, important. Why is it, do you think, that education systems find it difficult to um, nurture that type of interdependence? Because education systems are very good at breaking things down into their component parts. They're very good at atomizing them, but they're not very good at then putting them back together. Um, it's as though the important thing is for us to um, uh, to take the knowledge, the skills, the dispositions and the habits and, and to find the little boxes to put them in to get kids to memorise as much as they can of the box, to spit it back out in a test and yeah. push it away, then get on to the next box and so on and so on and so on without thinking so much about the whole system and the mm. whole person that's being produced there. I think there's, there's, there's several reasons for this, Phil, and I think, you know, I'm getting braver about saying why. I think we, you know, educators are often running political interference for children. And, I, you know, I say that quite boldly now because, you know, I've watched, I've lived in the United States for nine to ten years and, you know, you watch what's happening there at the moment and I would really hate that to happen to our countries um, where, where, you know, education becomes a, a political football um, and that's got that just cannot continue, you know. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote a, a paper, a global paper, for creating a global education system. Um, one of the one of the you know the biggest reason I think is that we we are you know as adults we like to com compartmentalize things because it makes sense to us. It doesn't make sense to kids to compartmentalize, and we don't measure what matters. 
That's the bottom line. To me, assessment, one of the one of the biggest issues we have is our assessment. We the government wants to get a return on their investment for education. Every government wants to have that. And when that happens, it starts to skew how we do that. And when we look at what what we how how a government would know that, know what success looks like, we've gone for what's easiest to measure. And when we do that, that has meant that it's done a disservice to our children. It's done a disservice to our teachers. And education is the only profession that has been allowed to get away with using one data point to make a decision about a person's life. Um, In the history, I think, of anything I've ever known, Um, if we went to the doctor and they made a decision based on one data point about our future, I think we 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 would be sacking every doctor in sight. Um, so I think the thing is, is that we have to loop, we have to move away from a single single data point as a as a decision maker for education, and move to a much more realistic, synthesized way of understanding our learners' progress, and think about what really matters and what really counts for education. I've interviewed children all over the world. I have interviewed parents all over the world. I have interviewed um, people in ministries of education all over the world, and. Without doubt, in every single situation, there is everything that people talk about what's important about education is not what we measure. So it's to me, it's like this, this strange thing that's going on around the world that we talk about what's really important about life, what's important about education, and then we go and measure something completely opposite. So until we face that fact and do so globally, we really are, we are really chasing something up a hill. And I think that, you know, the bottom line is, is let's face it, that we, we you know, we've lived, a th- you know, as I said earlier, we've lived thousands of years on this planet, survived it until recently in the last sort of two, two or three hundred years, we have really done damage to each other and our planet. So why is that? Because we're not looking at the right things. What really matters? So what are the, what, yeah, what are the right things then? What, what are the things that matter uh, uh, for you? The things that matter is the things about humanity and um, our planet. I think that what matters is how do we relate to each other? You know, I talk about contributive learning. and I know we're going to talk about that in another session. But, you know, the outcomes that matter is do you know who you are? Do you know how you fit into this world? Do you know how you can contribute your unique skills to our world? What's happened is in the last two or 300 years, we have overprivileged certain ways of living and being and made everybody else feel like they're useless. And for me, that's, that's, un- that's where we've got inequity. That's how we've created this way that makes people feel not so good. And we talk about, you know, our mental health bill and, it's, you know, we're getting into trillions of dollars. Now, the, how can we be doing that to each other? You know, every single person I've ever met has something I can find that I like about them or love about them even. If you sit down and take the time to get to know them in the world that we've created in this digital world, where we think that's the answer, we're actually taking away from each other. So that's one. Rather than, yeah, yeah, yeah rather, the, than, rather, rather than giving to each other, rather, rather than, than, than feeding to each other. Yeah. And the next thing's around connection. You know, if we don't connect to each other, we are so incredibly lonely. You know, there's so much research, so much, so much evidence about kids being lonely, kids being envious of each other's lives because of what it looks like. You know, and, and you know, people talk about why don't I do all of my work online now because then I can get it to every, everybody all over the world. Yes, I do want to do it online, 
But I also want people to recognize that if that was the answer, we'd, be, we'd have solved it by now because there are so many companies who are doing all of this work online. What I talk about is it's got to be a mix and match. We have to still have that human connection face-to-face. And, you know, that's it's, it's about knowing yourself, connecting, and then what knowledge do we need for each other to, to be successful for who we are? Now, the knowledge you need, Phil, is completely different from the knowledge I need because we, well, we're, we're slightly different because we actually are doing the same kind of work. But if, if you were going to go and be a doctor in, in the medif- medical field, it's a different set of knowledge that you need. Now, you'd be wasting your time trying to get me to be a medical doctor because I cannot stand blood. It'd be an absolute waste of time. But somebody else who just loves that, that's, they're going to get right into it. So spend as much time as you want to with them doing that. You know, you might be able to get me, you, and I mean, I know you're a chef. You know, you could have spent you know, years maybe doing some, some work in that space. But do what you love and then contribute it. And then how do we pair that with, how do we pair our competencies and how do we get that going to really bring that to life? So, so what really matters? It's us, it's humans, it's connecting, it's doing it together, it's being alive with each other and not living separately from each other. A lot of people in education would be very frightened about what you're saying. Oh, right I know. Now. I know. Because it, it unpicks everything. It um it's it's it it really it really is calling the emperor's new clothes, isn't it? Yeah. Or or to draw on another tradition that I spent twenty years teaching, you know, the, the Greek mythic tradition. It's like being it's like being it's like having the voice of the prophet. And yeah. the voice of the prophet is not so much the person who can predict the future, I think, yeah. mm. so much as the person who has the courage yeah. to call it for what it is, mm. despite the fact that everybody else is committed to maintaining the fabric mm. as it is. Where where's that courage come from in you, Jojo? I, I don't know, Phil. I mean, I, I, I can be extremely unpopular at times by, by what I'm saying, and but I don't I don't have any fear of it because I my job on this earth is to help kids. I woke up one day knowing my motto, and that is to free the children. And anybody asks me what my whole lifetime's job is, it's to free the children. Now I use the word free on purpose because currently they're trapped. In every education system, kids are trapped. So I want to free the children to be who they are. Free the children. And it's it's like if we had children who could actually, you, know, you look at the kids in the world today who have got access to freedom. And when I was talking about freedom, it's not to do whatever you like. It's freedom to have their voice. You think of the, the children who understand what, what us as adults are doing to the planet. They are challenging us. They are telling us it's not okay anymore. You know, you've heard me say that meaning and fulfillment is the new wealth and contribution is the only way to earn it. Kids have taught me that. Children teach me that. It's not me that's taught me that. I listen. I am listening with both of my ears to what children are telling me. And that's why I say we need to free them because they have the answers as well as more so than some in some cases but we have to provide the conditions by which they can create some of that learning. So, you know, it's it's part, we have a word in Māori, which is just one of my most favourite words in the whole world. It's called ako, A-K-O. And it means teaching and learning at the same time, at the same time, so simultaneously, that no one of us is a learner only. We're also a teacher. So we're doing it together all of the time. So as I'm teaching, I'm learning. As the kids that's are- so, That's so threatening. So in a system which is about the retention of power mm. by one group over the other mm. until 
the other graduates. Yeah. It's so difficult for people to let go of that control, though, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yes, it is. How do we help them do that? Um, we do it step by step. I mean, that's one of the things I've learned is that when I work with schools and groups of people is that what, what we do is we start where they are and we do one thing at a time. We start with bring your lesson design and let's change one thing for one child or bring your bring bring a let's talk about what are the conditions that your your school is in or your district is in or your region is in and what's the first thing we're going to do and we've what I've worked out is there are certain there are some big chunky things that we can do with each system that really make a difference and not waste time on anything else and and what um, what what are those dive into those big chunky things and we start from that and the first thing is we don't do everything at once and those those six or seven things that we've figured out that's our that's our secret source Phil and you know when we start working together more closely we'll we'll get into those but it's, <laughs> it's, about, <laughs> it's about it's about how do we actually help people cut through the noise get to what matters measure what matters and move on and not get stuck you know, we, you know, you think about every time we have a change of government, every time we have a change of legislation, schools don't necessarily stop doing what the last government told them to do. No, I think, I think, for, I think a lot of the time what schools are doing, they're just doing what they're doing and they're trying to appease governments as best as possible. But they, yeah. but, but they do what they do. Teachers do what they do despite everything else because they have this innate sense of what they think is right. Yeah. Um, that 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 biggest challenge is is as you know as Santiago Gallardo Rincon would say is is, is how, how do we see education as a liberation yeah. rather than yeah I love it edu- I love it that he says yeah. that yeah. yeah yeah you know yeah and, and I think and, you go no you go <laughs> <laughs> I need it yeah. um, I think I think you know one of the things for me is is that that that, that teachers I've never met a very well I shouldn't say never I've hardly ever met a teacher who doesn't want to do the right thing. Most teachers come into the profession with a genuine heart to actually make a difference for kids' lives. They get systematized, and then I talk about you know sort of this moral injury that we're doing to them by asking them to do things that they they don't they know in the end does not make a difference for kids. So then they become numb. What we've got to do is help them to become who they are again and go back to that beautiful person who became a teacher in the first place, and not be not be jaded or tired or over the system or over it, you know, and I mean, so often that's what I hear when I first start going and working with schools and systems. Is that yeah, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's yeah. a freaking voice, isn't it? When they just say, I'm so exhausted, I'm so yeah. exhausted, I'm so exhausted. Yeah, not and- another thing, not another thing. Can't, what, you know, I'll, what's this? You know, I, it, all of this sort of frustration, this anger, this venting, this, this like, I can't stand it. That's what's going into the classrooms. That's what's think, walking into classrooms, and that's what we've got to change. We've got to bring the joy back to working with our kids, working with our children. Can can I can I share something and get your response to it about what what I think underlies a lot of what teachers feel around it? And you know, it's a, 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 again a couple of weeks ago, I was working with a group of leaders from a school in the United Kingdom, and it became very very clear that two or three of them were um, completely disenchanted with just about anything really that we were trying to do on the day and it became quite difficult and sometimes it does Mm. what was clear at the heart of it though was that these folk felt as though they were not being respected i'm not sure that they felt as though me personally was disrespecting them 
so much as the whole world around them yeah. was treat they were fit they felt was treating them in a way that did not respect their autonomy did not respect their judgment did not respect their very being um, yeah. uh, so how do we help people to recognize that it's not about them it's about the kids yeah well actually i would go back a step and say let's get our teachers to remember who they are and i say that really strongly let's get our teachers to remember who they are and the work has to be done with our teachers first to honor them to remember them to say to them that you are precious that you actually have value and that you are worth spending some time with. When we get our teachers to remember themselves and remember that they are human and that they count and that they matter and that they are respected, then everything changes. Because it's what I said to you earlier, when a teacher feels grumpy and angry and they don't feel great, when they walk into a classroom, that's what they're taking with them and every kid in that classroom knows it. What we want is for them to change. We, we need to change that. And that's the tools that I've created. So I've got tools that talk about where do you sit on a continuum of, of knowing who you are and then what evidence do you have for that and then what's your plan to change it. So a lot of the time I do work with adults way before I go anywhere near a child. And the reason, the rationale for that is to exactly address that issue because we've done damage to our adults in our systems. We've actually done damage to them, and it's not their fault. I want to say that again. It is not their fault. The system has enabled damage to our adults just as much as it has enabled kids to leave, leave our school system without knowing who they are and without knowing how they're going to contribute to our society. And it's been a churning, 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 and it's just got to stop. And so much of it, therefore, is... is about that balancing of the, the the individual and the collective voices of all the people involved within the system because I'm, I'm I'm sure there are very few if any who have custodianship over the various different systems who mean to do that sort of damage it's just the way in which uh, a particular type of leadership a particular type of administration cultivates a system which is all about the essential humanity of children and those who support them somehow that humanity gets lost along the way doesn't it yeah and it it it, it's i talk about people get numb and you know they get to drive home in their car every night to a nice house and forget who's who's behind them and so for me it's about remembering who are we serving and what are we actually doing with them to make life better for everybody it's partly about listening again and actually stopping the madness you know, people say, I haven't got time to do this. I haven't got time to do this. And so I just sort of talk about, let's stop everything else until we have got time to do this, because what's the most important? Because, you know, I said earlier, I ask, you know, groups of people all over the world, what's really important, yet nobody does it. So what's that? What's that about? You know, and then I say to them, so I ask people, what's that about? And nobody can answer me. You know, it's like, why, well, why do you do it? And, and, and you know, we, we've got to the stage where there's this almost blankness. Like, are we robots? Are we, are we not able to care about each other anymore? Are we, you know, why have we got to this point where we're prepared to do that to ourselves and to our children when we know that that doesn't work for us anymore and it doesn't help us? And look at the state the world is in. Yeah, I'm not sure it ever worked particularly well. It's just we have a system, now of, yeah. a system now of mass education which doesn't tolerate children exiting from the system 
yeah. you know, for the first 150 years of public education, it was perfectly acceptable um, for those who couldn't play the game of school according to the rules to leave because there was no social expectation that everybody would get a decent education. It was it, there was instead that that compliance notion that everybody needed a basic education. Although I'm convinced that the reason why people decided that they needed a basic uh, education only arose because we decided that children weren't a workforce anymore. So we have to do something with them. And then there's well-meaning philanthropic people coming in there, going, "Come on, children should at least have a basic education." Well, mm. that suggests that some children get a basic education and some children don't. Somewhere around. 50 years ago or so, so during our lifetimes, governments all over the world recognise that if there is an answer to what it is that's going on in the world, it's education, and that outcomes for adults are better the longer they stay in the education system. And so suddenly, we've got a system that was designed to eliminate those who couldn't play the game of school, having to retain all and the, the fractures in the system, the dissonances in the system, uh, we haven't got a way of working that out unless we listen to that lone, those lone voices saying there has to be a different way and we have to do things differently and we have to rediscover our connectivity to ourselves. We have to rediscover the fact that we're all learners and teachers at the same time. We have to rediscover the fact that it's not about the individual or the collective, it's about both and the interdependence between there. Um, and, that, and that along the way, we need to recognise that um, there is an essentially human quality to what it is that we do within education and that if we don't do something to recognise that in ourselves and to value that in ourselves, both individually and collectively, then how are we going to pass that on to children? How are we going to do that better? We're not. So you, you've summarised it beautifully. And I think just to give you, you an example of success is that with our Māori um, kura here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, they have, they have just as much success, if not more, than our um, state schools do for our children. We don't have a gap. I want to say it again. We don't have a gap. There is no gap for our Māori students when they are taught by Māori, with Māori, in their own cultural identity. There is no gap. So tease out the implications of that, please, for me. So when we talk about our Indigenous students failing in our education system, when they have the opportunity to be taught within their own cultural identity, which involves relationships first, being able to speak their own language, being able to do all of the things that you just summarised that we've just been talking about, they are successful. So what's happening is that they're in a system that doesn't meet their needs. When they're in a system that meets their needs and is, they're being taught in the way that, that, that is successful for them, they are successful. So there is an example in our world that shows that Indigenous children can be exceedingly successful in education, sitting right here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, where there is no achievement gap. So in other words, if we've got the courage to call it for what it is, and if we've got the courage to find solutions that break away from the system as it is and focus on what it is that children need. And as you said earlier, if this group of children needs something different to that group of children, if this child needs, then then you do it because it's what it. children need. You do what the children need because at the moment our system does what adults want and guess what? It's not working. And guess what? It's not working for the adults either because they're just as miserable. 
There we go. I think that's a great place for us to stop, if that's okay, Jojo, because having unpicked the system in the second um, episode of this special series, I'd like to dig into agency and maybe we might then be able to create a scaffold um, for our listeners about how some of the solutions might be posed, might be found, might be discovered. Thank you so much for your willingness to share your brave voice today and I look forward to next time. You're more than welcome. Kakitiano. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by our School for Tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.